This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Parks and playgrounds are supposed to be places where people can be carefree and have fun. However, so many playgrounds are not inclusive, and that leaves many people with disabilities on the sidelines. So, what goes into making a playground inclusive? Let's find out with the president of Designable Environments, Thea Curdy. Hey, good morning, Thea. Great to chat with you once again. Good morning, Dave. So, Thea, I think we have an understanding of why play spaces are so important for children when they're developing, but why specifically is having accessible play space important? Well, first, I'll I'll start by saying Happy National Disability Employment Awareness Mm -hmm. Month. Um, I know you've been talking a lot about that, uh, and we did last year, and that segment's on our website if people are interested in hearing more about accessible office spaces. Um, But as it's now later in the fall season, it might seem like an odd time to be talking about playgrounds, but if you're a school or community, you're probably planning to be starting to update your playground for next summer. So that planning happens starting from the fall and through the winter. So it's a great time for those people. So I thought it would be a good thing to bring up. Um, As you know, I've been working in accessibility in the built environment for over 20 years now. And I think I've mentioned several times, I have two passion projects, one of which being accessible housing, which we've talked about on several times, and the second being play spaces. Um, uh, I've done many presentations about this as well. And um, one of the things that came out or I learned in in doing research for this is that um, uh, back in 2018, there was a survey that 92% of Canadians agree that accessibility for people with disabilities is a basic human right. But still our playgrounds across the country continue to leave kids, um, little kids with disabilities on the sidelines, as you said, um, but also parents with disabilities or older people. Uh, Children with disabilities also at a higher risk of social isolation are often excluded from play because the playgrounds are not accessible and spend more time alone watching television and playing on their computers instead. In fact, 53% of kids who have disabilities apparently have zero or only one close friend, which is terrible. And that's from a report from Holland Bloorview Kids Rehabilitation Hospital. So play is a critical part of learning. We know that play-based learning is a big part of what we do. We spend so much money on early years uh, planning uh, trying to help kids get started on the right thing. Uh, foot and play-based learning is a big part of that. You get to play, have fun, but you're also learning risks. You're learning social skills. Uh, and experiences with, you know, consequences that are maybe not too dire. So accessible play spaces, whether indoors or outdoors, ensure that kids can play with their peers in an equal and fun environment. Thea, one of the reasons why we always appreciate your expertise in all of these conversations is that you do the dirty work here. You go into the code, you look into the building codes and educate us. So what does the building code and other accessibility legislation currently require for play spaces? 
Yeah, I always keep in mind that our listeners might be people who are involved or trying actively to help improve accessibility, uh, particularly because our building codes are so in, in, insufficient, if they suck. <laughs> uh, so I know a lot of people in the disabled community are really trying to, you know, pitch in, but they don't know what they, you know, what's in the law, what's out of the law. They, they don't know where the resources are. So this is part of the reason why I love doing this show with you and I appreciate doing it. Um, so unfortunately, from a play spaces and playgrounds perspective, there's really nothing specific in the national or provincial building codes themselves, um, which is part of the problem. Uh, and without those specific requirements, then manufacturers don't know what they have to be building to create a product that people will be buying. Uh, so they're going on, you know, what they know are best practices. Designers might have guidelines um, and again, best practices to work from, but there's no training. Um, that we're still suffering because our post-secondary education is not uh, training uh, people who are doing industrial design and create the products. Um, the landscape architects, the interior design architects, and the uh, architects themselves um, to think about. Uh, but even the policymakers and the and people who run municipalities don't don't know what an accessible playground means. Um, and because playgrounds are not accessible by default, even places you'd expect or hope to have accessible playgrounds like schools or hospitals, et cetera, uh, still don't have them. Um, and as I mentioned before, of course, outdoor playgrounds is one place, but uh, you know, here in Canada, many outdoor playgrounds are not usable in late fall, winter, and early spring. So uh, for almost the last 20 years, we started to see interior play spaces popping up that parents will take their kids to to run around and play, burn off some of that energy um, if the snow or ice or uh, just weather is too bad to do it. And that's a great place for accessibility for all of those reasons for kids with disabilities. And yet because they're uh, private and because there's no legislation, they're not accessible. So what we see in Ontario is um, Ontario passed the first uh, provincial accessibility uh, act called the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act back in 2005 with the goal of making Ontario accessible by 2025. But the only standard that built with the built, deals with the built environment is the design of public spaces, which came out in 2013 and hasn't been updated since. It is being updated now. I'm not sure what that's gonna include. But right now, the, the playground section just says that you have to consult with people with disabilities. Now, I think what that meant was that they thought that they were gonna be getting local grassroots solutions to the local needs. But unfortunately, municipalities were not given money to be holding consultations with people with disabilities. So what often sadly happened is that they decided to do one consultation once and then take those recommendations as guidelines. Yeah. So they're not requirements. And even where they have accessibility advisory groups, I was sitting in on a meeting recently uh, where the accessibility advisory group was presented with a new playground that had already been designed. And then they were asked for feedback and you could just feel the frustration in the room. How come you didn't talk to us before you designed anything? And then there's just so many barriers here. It's hard to know where to begin was a part of the feedback that I heard. And then what's happening with the feedback that we gave you from the last playground, right. you know, there seems <laughs> right. to be no continuous learning that's happening. So the process is kind of broken right from the legislation all the way through. We're not getting the nothing about us without us really understanding it. We're not getting the inclusive from the start to make sure that we're not trying to fix something that's inherently inaccessible. Yeah. Um, and we can't keep making the same mistakes of the past just because it's a different size or a different cost. Yes, it costs less to discriminate against people, but that's not what we're supposed to be doing. We can't afford to be making these same mistakes. 
Thea, I oftentimes think about that when you when you have someone saying, uh, usually a city representative or a, a recreation department representative, saying, like, oh, well, you know, one parent who has a kid with a disability told us the kid likes this, so therefore our playground is now accessible. And it's like, no, that's not <laughs> that's not how you make policy. One anecdote is not how you frame good policy. You need multiple anecdotes. But as you say, ultimately you need standards. And I think it was contained a little bit in that last answer, Thea. But why are we still seeing so few accessible playgrounds? Uh, well, I think the, the real answer is that unfortunately we're not, uh, we still have the um, non-disabled as the gatekeepers deciding what's appropriate, what the budget should be. Um, they're working from old play group, uh, playbooks uh, about what's, what's reasonable, uh, what does a play space look like. Um, so the biggest barriers uh, tend to be that we're uh, talking about bias and ableism. You know? uh, it, often we're also looking at if they are going to consider accessibility, as you said, it's anecdotal. Um, uh, often parents with uh, kids with disabilities or disabled parents will say, "Don't I don't know what makes an accessible playground, but I can tell you what's not working. So looking to them versus looking to the design community, and as I said earlier, if we don't fix it in education, like, like how do we expect it to happen? Right? Yeah, like, yeah. There's too many people who think they know, but do they really know? Um, and they're not understand what people really aren't understanding is that 40 years ago, we can change the Canadian charter to say people with disabilities are equal and the human rights code to say that disabled uh, spaces shall not discriminate against uh, people. And that should, of course, include playgrounds, which are really are hubbed for our communities. Um, and unfortunately, as I said, the current standard practices don't help us. So there are good news. There is an, um, a playground directories where you can find accessible playgrounds in your community. So it's not completely lost. Um, I did find um, a, a website called accessibleplayground.net. Um, and I don't know how up to date it is because you have to like personally list it. So if you can go and list your local playground, that would be great. But like, for example, Quinn's Place at Paradise Elementary in Paradise, Newfoundland apparently has an accessible playground. The Westmount Inclusive Playground in Nova Scotia um, or Halifax, Nova Scotia. And then, of course, here in Mississauga, uh, we have the Zonka Park. But there's so many across the country. But again, without standards, what's defined as accessible in one place, which is often wheelchair, not thinking about kids who are blind or have vision loss, not thinking about kids who are deaf or deafened or hard of hearing, not thinking about kids with environmental sensitivities or their parents and caregivers. So the latest resource we have is an inclusive playgrounds playbook, which was um, developed by my friend Tim Ross, who I'm working with on a really cool urban planning project, which I can't wait to talk to you about another time. Uh, but uh, Tim Ross worked with a few other people from the uh, University of Toronto and uh, an inclusive uh, design service and the University of Alberta uh, with Holland Bloorview to create this brand new inclusive playground where they reviewed, I think, like 120 different uh, playground standards and best practices from Canada and around the world. So it's really the latest and greatest. And again, I'll be posting that on social media for people who uh, would like to be looking more about that. Thea, as always, we're running a little bit over time here, but I do want to make sure that we're ending on these positive notes or these fun notes or at least solutions focused ideas. So give me a couple of the top ideas about making a play space usable and fun beyond the minimum design standard. 
Right. Okay. So instead of making trying to stay, this is a traditional playground and trying to fix it for accessibility. You got to start thinking from the ground up. You got to start like right from the beginning thinking, right, instead of building all these ramps and platforms and things, what can we do on the ground to make it more playful and easier for everybody, parents, grandparents, caregivers, uh, you know, play is about exercise as well, and everybody needs exercise. Uh, it's not about having an ASL alphabet on the ground floor, uh, but maybe having something more interactive like a tic-tac-toe game. Uh, if, if you have sandboxes, if they're down on the ground, that's hard for people to get to. Kids get, you know, sand in their shoes and everything. So elevate them. If you put them on an elevated uh, sandbox, then kids uh, with wheelchairs or parents can wheel right up and play at a, a height. People who can't bend over can play at a height. Uh, and of course, the sand tends to stay in the sandbox. And you don't have to worry about maybe some things being buried in the sand that you don't want there. Um, <laughs> Uh, or the sand spreading around as much. Uh, you can add things like drums, chimes, and bells. Uh, there's something called generational swings, which I just posted uh, yesterday um, on our social media to show that you can have an adult on one side and a baby swing on the other. So you yes. can be facing each other to swing rather than just standing behind your kid pushing them all day. I'm tired, leave me alone. Sensory <laughs> <laughs> uh, gardens for kids with uh, you know, autism are, are great. Uh, standalone features where people can get away and just sort of swing maybe a little bit by themselves. Uh, wheelchair users, you don't have to transfer on to swings, although that's great if you can, uh, but having a roll-on swing would be great as well. And then thinking about drinking fountains, parking, uh, it's, uh, shaded rest areas, tactile treasure hunts, uh, canoe boats that have the side cut out so that you don't have to climb over the edge to pretend that you're canoeing, but you can roll right in. Uh, there's so many great ideas out there. It's, it's just a lack of uh, thinking and creativity that's really holding us back, I think. Thea, it always amazes me how many people will reach out to me as we're planning interviews or segments and saying, oh my gosh, you have Thea Curdy on your show. She's amazing. I think one of the reasons why people love you and know you as well as they do is because you are super present in the community and you're always highlighting interesting events for people to attend or take information from. So any interesting upcoming events that you want to highlight? Well, this afternoon I'm doing another presentation on accessibility for places on uh, National Disability Employment Awareness Month for Infrastructure Canada, um, but it may be too late to uh, register for that. So otherwise, if you're interested in learning about that, on Wednesday, October 17th, there's another virtual panel discussion, which I'm not going to be a part of, um, but it's organized by Diversibility, and I'll be posting a link to that on social media after, at T-K-U-R-D-I on Twitter, but also on LinkedIn and Facebook. Uh, Tuesday, October 18th, there's a cooperative uh, co-op uh, or sorry, Queen's Park reception happening here in Ontario. Um, and they're having something, it's a reception and a lobby day about co-op week. So that's about accessible housing and co-ops. And then finally, uh, the A11YTO folks are having their conference on October 17th and 18th. And this is all about digital accessibility um, and uh, games and stuff. So it's really fun. And again, there's a website uh, to help people register. My goodness, Thea, I don't know when you sleep, but we're so grateful that you make time for us every month. And we'll talk to you again in a couple of weeks. So fun to be here. Thanks, Dave. That's Thea Curdy, the president of Designable Environments. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Joita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube 
or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts.